so good to be with you guys and always grateful for communion and the chance to spend a little extra time uh, not just considering what God's Word has to say about what we do, but also my chance to look at you and see your faces and thank God for the privilege to be a part of this uh, church body. I'm very, very grateful. Uh, Last week, if you were here, you know we learned how Peter and John were thrown in jail. That's right, thrown in jail for healing a man born lame. Uh, It was a miracle that clearly no one could deny, but it was one that the religious leaders refused to accept. They were proclaiming Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They being these illegitimate teachers on their turf, the turf of the religious leaders, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they didn't agree with either one of those truths. Because for them, Jesus was a stumbling block that just got in the way of how they wanted to live. In the resurrection... Well, that was a kingdom's concept that would really mess up their world because, quite frankly, they liked the kingdom just like it was <laughs> because it was a kingdom where they were in control. And so even though they could not convict the disciples for committing a crime, they did very clearly threaten them if they were to continue to preach in Jesus' name. And we need to understand that was not an empty threat. They could bring the hammer down, literally. That's what they did with Jesus. And they could just as easily do it with the disciples. And so as we finish up that scene, we now move into the next one with the question, how will the disciples respond? And more than that, how will the church respond in the face of persecution? And so that's what we're going to look at together. If you're not already there, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And begin reading with me in verse 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who have made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, have said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and and Pontius Pilate and along with Gentiles and, and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all confidence. While you do extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what we see in this section is that in the face of persecution, so we're asking the question, how did they respond? Well, we see right here, in the face of persecution, they responded by turning to God in prayer. It says that Peter and John went back to their companions, to those believers within this early church, and they gave them all the details. 
They told him everything that had happened and all that the religious leaders had said to them, including the threat on their lives. And if Peter and John were being threatened, then so were they. Because it was the very same message they were all proclaiming, that there is salvation in no one else. Salvation through faith in in Christ alone. So all the early Christians were in the crosshairs of these religious leaders. What they had threatened with the disciples was just as much a, a threat to them. That's why in verse 24, it says that they all lifted their voices in one accord. They were in this thing together. And so in the face of persecution, it didn't by any means tear them apart. In fact, it was just the opposite. It brought them together. But as you look at their prayer, I think you'll find that it is very different than what we often see in our own prayers. Because I think sometimes when we pray, we we get in this habit of feeling like we need to inform God of our situation. Like our prayer, at least in part, is to kind of bring him up to speed, so to speak. (laughs) You know, we might pray, Lord, would you you please be with John? He's at UMC. He's been there for a couple of decades. And, you know, it's been really hard for John in the workplace. And, well, you know, John had an appraisal last week. And, well, that didn't go well, but... His boss is hard to work with, and so it's always been difficult. So, Lord, would, would you just help John persevere? Does that kind of sound like our prayers sometimes, where we end up informing God as if he's unaware of the situation with John at UMC, right? And I think sometimes as a result, we end up in our prayers talking more about us than we do about God. And as I look at this prayer of the disciples, that to me is the biggest difference. They talk a whole lot more about God, not very much about them. I want you to notice how the disciples did not inform God of the situation that they were in. In fact, instead of informing God of their situation, they let their situation be informed by God. If you look at their prayer, that framework hinges on the truth of God's word. There's scripture all throughout their prayer. And as I look at the prayer, I see three foundational truths seen in scripture that were the framework of their prayer. The first one is that it exalts the sovereignty of God. That's what they do in the beginning. The second thing is that it believes in the promises of God. In many ways, as we will see, they rehearse God's faithfulness in the past. Because the third thing you'll see is that it trusts in the provision of God. Their prayer were centered around who God is, what God has done, and therefore, what God will do. Look again at verse 24. And when they heard this, talking about all those who had gathered, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Their prayer begins with the sovereignty of God, a truth that is fixed in the testimony of God's word. In this case, Psalm 146, where David recognizes That God is the creator of all that exists, of all that is in heaven, of all that is on earth, 
of all that is in the sea and, and all that fills all those things. If you've been memorizing Isaiah 40, and I hope you have, you see some of these same truths there where it talks about God is the one who holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, who, who measures the span of the heavens by the span of his hand, who calculates the dust of the earth in a measure, who weighs the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales goes on and says, have you not heard? Have you not seen? Has it not been declared to you since the foundation of the earth that it is God who exists above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants, that's us, are like grasshoppers. It says that he stretches the heavens like a curtain. That he opens them up like a tent for us to dwell in. That's who God is. I think the scripture is clear that we serve a very big God who is in sovereign control. And when we recognize just how big God is, we realize we don't need to inform him of anything. He is fully aware. And not only that, he is in complete control. He is the creator of and sustainer of all that exists. Our prayers need to begin in that place where we recognize and exalt God for who He is based on how He has made Himself known in His Word. But then look at how it continues in verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said... Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples defies futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined, to occur. After recognizing who God is, they begin to remember all that God has done. And again, their prayer is centered, it's anchored on the truth of God's Word, in this case, Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 originally, by David, was a psalm that was used in the inauguration of a new king when he came into power. And what this psalm is intended to declare is that Anyone who goes against God's anointed, in this case the king, goes against God himself. So the disciples take that truth of scripture and now apply it to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God's anointed Messiah. They highlight how Herod and Pontius Pilate, they talk about Jewish leaders and, and Gentile leaders, how all the mightiest rulers at that time came against God's plan. But in their collective opposition against the Lord and His anointed, they did not prevail. For what they intended for evil, God has used for good. They crucified the Messiah, but God raised Him from the dead. 
Now, you remember back in chapter 2, we talked about this tension that exists in a passage like this where we have this tension between human responsibility and, 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 and divine sovereignty. And in chapter 2, we talked about how Jesus died because of a deliberate decision by sinful men, a decision, a, a choice that they made that they will be held responsible for. And yet, God used that willful rebellion to bring about an eternal purpose. A purpose that had been predestined before the world began. That there would be salvation in no one else except the one that God had anointed as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God's power is always greater than man's sin. God's power is always greater than man's sin. The promise of God cannot be thwarted by man's sinful decisions. Whether that man is me or anyone else, praise the Lord for that. God's faithfulness is greater than our sin. That's a powerful truth of Scripture that we cannot lose sight of. So the disciples begin by exalting the the sovereignty of God. They they affirm the promises of God and how He's worked them out in their lives as they speak. And then they take all those things and they entrust themselves to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 29. And now, based on these things, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you do extend your hand to heal and and, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want you to notice that the disciples did not pray for the persecution to end. The disciples prayed that they might be faithful in the midst of it. I feel certain that the disciples remembered how Jesus had prepared them, how he had prepared them precisely for this moment. For Jesus says to them in John chapter 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, then surely, most certainly, they will persecute you. They hate you because you stand for me, but stand strong because I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's why they say, Lord, strengthen our conviction to proclaim your word. Work through us, Lord, because we trust in you more than we fear them. Help us be faithful in the midst of what you promised would be. See, I believe the disciples were fully convinced that God's plan would ultimately prevail. They were not worried about he would, what he would do. They were most concerned about what they would do. That they might be faithful to him in the midst of persecution. They wanted to be fully committed to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just as he was clearly fully committed to them. Look at how it continues in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. As we see in verse 31, there was an immediate answer to the disciples' prayer in that moment. Everything they asked for in that moment took place as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They prayed for confidence to proclaim God's word. And then it says they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That is a direct answer to their very specific prayer. But I want to be clear. The filling of the Spirit in this moment is not the same thing as the baptism of the Spirit that took place at Pentecost. This is not a second blessing. As many proclaim today, that there's evidence that now their faith has been validated. That is not what is happening here. Because when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in that moment they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Corinthians, do you not know? You're the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Not part of the Spirit, but all of the Spirit. And so the goal of the Christian life is not to get more of God. The goal of the Christian life is for God to get more of you. There's a big difference in those two things. We want our life to be increasingly in alignment with God's will, where we faithfully walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. You see, Being filled with the Spirit, in a sense, is a renewed awareness of God's power through His Spirit in everyday life. And since that's true, it should be an ongoing reality of every single believer. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and let me give you at least one passage to validate what I just said to be true. There are plenty. Here's one, Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to begin in verse 15. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but here it is, be filled with the Spirit. I want you to notice how the understanding of God's will is directly tied to being filled with the Spirit. That's because faithful obedience does not happen apart from God's strength at work within us. Faithful obedience, as hard as we may try, cannot happen apart from the work of God's Spirit in our life. The knowledge of His will, the power to obey, are all a work of God according to the power of the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit 
is a renewed awareness of His power at work in our everyday life. That's what the disciples asked for. And in that moment, that's what the disciples received. And what's true for them is equally true for us. See, just practically, in our world today, being filled with the Spirit is how marriages work. Being filled with the Spirit is how marriages work, so that they're not filled with bitterness or suspicion or betrayal. It's how families are are deeply connected, free from jealousy or resentment or distraction. It's how we become a faithful witness, doing what's right in the eyes of God. We must be filled with the Spirit for any of those things to happen. Because what did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, his spirit is his life at work in us. And apart from him, none of those things are possible. The knowledge of God's will, the power to obey, is always, always, always a result of his abundant grace. Now look at verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property among them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And there was no needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute to each as they had need. So it's important to see in this example that that being filled with the Spirit ultimately is more of a corporate reality than just an individual experience. It's not how we think about it a lot today. We think of being filled with the Spirit purely as an individual experience, my relationship with God. But if you look at that Scripture, and especially as we see being lived out here, this is a corporate experience. They were all filled with the Spirit. This is where the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God so that they might fulfill the mission of God ultimately for the glory of God. That's how that happens. Verse 32, it says, The disciples were of one heart and of one soul. But I want you to keep in mind, some of these people have barely known each other except for the last few days. Remember, when they came to Jerusalem at Pentecost, the Scripture told us that they came from all parts of the world. And so some of them were meeting each other as they've put their faith in Christ for the very first time. In chapter 2, it said they were from every nation under heaven. So part of being filled with the Spirit is a a deep sense of unity among other believers, despite the fact that you may have not had very much life experience together at all. And this is something that can be true for us as well. Mark and Bonnie went with Mark and Carla Pruitt to Mexico this last week. And while they were there, they went and visited Chuck and Carla Top. Now, you know, Chuck and Carla have been sent out from our church. They've been there for 17, 18 years at least. They started a church plant, but now have started a new church plant. So while they were there, they went to this new church plant. 
Some of those from Ciudad Azteca, the first church plant, came and joined them. And Mark and Carla were meeting most all of these people for the very first time. Even Mark and Bonnie didn't know some of the folks in this new church. But they will both tell you that it felt like they'd known them for a very long time because they had something in common that knit their hearts together, just like we see with the disciples. I've had that same experience when I've been in Mexico and we've sat down to sing a worship song which I could not understand a single word because it was in a language I did not speak, but it was just as worshipful in that moment as it was this morning in our church. Because being filled with the Spirit has a way of knitting your hearts even if you don't have shared life experience because you have the most important thing in common. Your faith and love in Jesus Christ. You see, the unity of the disciples in that moment of prayer was not a result of shared life experience. It was a result of a supernatural work of God knitting their hearts together. That's why I've always said we don't create unity in the church. God creates unity as a work of the Spirit. Our role is to protect what he made possible. I love this illustration from A.W. Tozer, who speaks to this point. Listen to what he says. He says, a hundred pianos tuned to one fork, and just in case you don't know, it's a tuning fork, okay? But listen, a hundred pianos tuned to one fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are in one accord. By being tuned not to each other, but to the one standard to which each individual must bow. So a hundred worshipers meeting together, each tuned to Christ, are in heart nearer to one another than they could ever be if they were to strive towards unity on their own. See the difference? That's why what exists in the church is vastly different than what exists in the world. Where people are supernaturally unified together without having had a long history of shared life experience because they have the most important thing in common. Their faith and love in Jesus Christ. And with that, he does a miraculous work. And notice the practical implications of how this fleshed itself out within this church. It says in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them. And this is not an experiment in socialism where it says that you own nothing, okay? They all own land and property and houses and, and those sorts of things. They continue to own land and property and possessions. But here's the difference. They each saw God's blessing of individuals to be a provision for his church. They each saw that individual blessing was God's provision for the church as a whole. In other words, God never blesses me without consideration of how I might be a blessing to you. God never provides for me without consideration of how that provision might be a blessing to someone outside of me. 
That's why the scripture tells each person to give according what's on their heart. Not out of obligation or under compulsion. It says that God loves a cheerful giver. Well, why is that? It's because what God does with one person is intended to be a blessing to a whole lot more than that. And I want us to understand that this is not just a, a New Testament concept that began in the church. This has always been true of God's people. It was true of Israel. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but you might write this one down. It's Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. And it says, However, there shall, be no more, there shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. Having no poor and, and, and no needy person among you, it's the saying the exact same thing, isn't it? That's because what God does for each individual is intended to be a blessing to the community as a whole. And so maybe I think as we think about giving, we should think less about percentages. Is it 10%? Is it 20? Is it gross? Is it net? Maybe we shouldn't worry so much about those details as we should be concerned about what God puts on our heart. And how we take what he has given us and allow it to be a blessing to other people. I really believe that that's the heart behind what's happening here. They placed it at the apostles' feet. You give offerings to the leadership of this church and we, like them, distribute them to the needs of the body. And if we're being faithful, I'm convinced of this, if we're being faithful individually in our hearts, there will not be a need in this church. Just as there wasn't for them. In the face of persecution, the people of God turned to prayer. And Russell and I talked about this this week, didn't we? How we sorely underestimate the power of prayer. And I wonder, Russell, as I've worked through this, if it's because... We don't pray like they do. Our prayers need to be centered on God's sovereignty. They need to be grounded in God's word. They need to be focused on faithful service. And I think as a result of that kind of a prayer life, that's how the people of God, all of us, are filled with the Spirit of God. So that we collectively can carry out the mission of God in a way that brings glory and honor to God. See, they were knit together in both heart and soul, caring for one another through God's faithful provision. And his abundant grace, it says, was upon them all. As I look at that, I think, man, those are the signs of a healthy church, right? If you want to know what it looks like, there it is. And so with that, I think we should ask ourselves, if that's what it looks like to be a healthy church, does that describe us? Is that who we are? And I want you to know in many ways, I really believe it is. I think Melanie Park is a very generous church. I think Melanie Park is a church that sincerely cares for one another. We recently had lunch with a new couple in our church, Megan and Taylor Fuller. They just got married in January, just started attending Melanie Park. And they said the very first day they visited, they ran into Russ and Elizabeth concert who introduced themselves and went on to say, hey, we're starting a new small group. If you guys are looking for a place to plug in, you're welcome to join us. And they did. 
And they said that group has been a tremendous blessing to them. Well, a week later, we sat down with Larry and Emily Zhang, who were, by the way, carrying in the nursery this morning because they're faithful servants of the Lord in that. But they told us the very same thing. They said, we learned about this small group. We've been connected to that group, and it has been such a blessing to us. We sat down with uh, Chris and Emma Sanders this last week, had dinner at our house, and I'll tell you like I told them. I am deeply encouraged by what I see in the younger generations of this church becoming increasingly involved in the life and ministry of this body. A year ago, I sat here, stood here, and told you I'm concerned. I'm concerned because we need a new generation of believers who are willing to be a part of the life and ministry of this body. And I see the Lord answering that prayer. And I am deeply, deeply encouraged. This past week, David and Marianne Lukemeyer had us over to their house, fed us a tremendous meal, and they said, we just want you to know what a blessing this church has been to us. This is just one small way to say thank you because we are so grateful to be here. So yeah, I believe a lot of those things are happening in this church, but this is not a perfect church. In fact, those don't exist, do they? But I do think what we can do is be grateful for what does exist and pray to grow in faithfulness even more. So there's the passage in Hebrews, right? Consider how to uh, encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And all the more as the day draws near. I think within that passage is an encouragement to just keep growing, keep being faithful. And so one of the ways that I think we can do that as it applies to our passage this morning, is to grow in our faithfulness in this area of prayer. Prayer that is centered on God's sovereignty, that is grounded in God's word, that is focused on our faithful response to who he is and to what he's done. Prayers that I believe ultimately are the source of unity within his body. And so here's my encouragement to you as it relates to this topic. The next time you pray, I believe you need to have either a Bible in your hand or his word in your heart. The next time you pray, you need to have a Bible in your hand or his word in your heart because our prayers should begin with exalting God as he has revealed himself in the truth of his word. Passages like Psalm 145, Isaiah 40, that that help us understand just how big he is. And I think, like we've talked about, if we understand how big God is, we're less inclined to inform him about things he's already aware of and fully capable of dealing with. Our God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. And when we pray, that's where we need to begin. The second thing I think we need to do is take some time to remember what he's done, the the promises that he's fulfilled. And I think we need to really focus our attention there on what has been fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the things that we talked about in communion, Jesus is my, well, rehearse those, remind yourselves of those things. Remember how he has been faithful to fulfill those promises. He is our hope, our life, our refuge, our friend. Prayer should be reminding us that Jesus is all we need. 
that he is sufficient. And then finally, we need to pray to be a faithful witness in whatever situation that we may be in. Let's, let's pray less about changing situations and more about being faithful in the midst of them. And I realize, that the reason I say that is because I know of a number of difficult situations that many of you are in right now. And here's what I know about those situations, as is true for you, as is true for me. They're not going to have an easy fix. They're going to take time. And so the prayer is, Lord, help me be faithful in the midst of that. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations that may not change this side of heaven. And so, Lord, help me be faithful in the midst of that reality. And let me encourage us not to just pray individually, but to pray corporately. That we might display, as his body, the manifold wisdom of God to the world around us. That what happens within the life of this church, through the unity and love and care for one another, would say something about who we serve and what he's done in our life. That we would be the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God so that we might be faithful to the mission of God in a way that ultimately brings glory to God. Does that make sense? That's what we're here for. And so as we finish up this morning, I want to take some practical application to what I just asked us to do, and that's how we're going to close in prayer. So, uh, Russell, would you please, uh, I want you to stand up, and you're going to go first, and I want you to take Isaiah, I have it written down here, hold on. And it is right here. Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 11. Carrie, would you please take Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Jill Stoddard, would you please take Colossians 1. Sorry. Going back to the original, sorry. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. So, Russell, you've got Isaiah 40, 25 through 11. I mean, 25 through 31. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Carrie. Jill Shanklin. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Got them? Okay, so the three of you guys, would you please stand up? Would you please go first and... Here's what I want you to hear in what we're going to see being read in Scripture. And that is, we are going to exalt God for who He is. We are going to remember God for what He has done. And we are going to entrust ourselves to God in what He will do. Okay? So, Russell?
Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Carrie? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Jill. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, to the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Lord, hear our prayer, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great day.